0: Today we'll conclude our seven-week study on the Lord's Prayer found here in Luke 11, 1-4. So let's one more time stand and read together these very familiar verses, uh, Luke 11, 1-4. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Please be seated. So as I mentioned to you, uh, I had the opportunity to go on vacation. My sister-in-law lives up in the Boston area, just south of Boston, but uh, being kind of the uh, guy that I am, I I didn't plan very well and I made too many work commitments so I sent my family up on Thursday and I finally was getting on a plane at about 5 o'clock Friday evening. Now I've come to understand that God allows me to go on vacation so he can get me on an airplane. Because I I, I just know that anytime I get on an airplane you know this is going to be a clinic for me and God's going to show me something. He's going to usually set up some kind of a, a divine appointment and I used to kind of dread it. Now I've just come to accept it. And I I have a test now when I'm sitting on an airplane. If you end up sitting next to me, you'll find that I apply this test. And that is that I will just drop, you know, the statement early on in conversation, yeah, I'm a pastor of a local church. And then somewhere soon after that, I'll mention the word Jesus. And if God has arranged a divine appointment for me to engage in a faith conversation with somebody, within five to ten minutes, we'll be hard at it, or I'll be sound asleep. One of those two things will happen. So I was waiting to board my flight to Boston, and I see ahead of me this lady, you know, who's clearly a Muslim. She has the headdress on. And I'm thinking, oh, so this is it. Okay, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready to talk to a Muslim woman about Jesus for the next several hours. But I get onto the plane, and that's not the case at all. I'm sitting between this man and a woman. They're not related, but they're both unbelievers. The woman, uh, turns out that her mother was a Christian. Her father was a Muslim. She was neither. She was an agnostic. Uh, consider herself a feminist and then the the man to my right was a young man aspiring a uh, med student who's also a musician and uh, Just quintessential kind of Northeastern uh, Neat guy, but very proud of what he did not believe in not really clear about what he did believe in And I sat and I listened to these people which is so helpful You know pastors we're surrounded by Christian staff and Christians all the time So it, it was a very interesting uh, flight and here's a few things that became clear to me as I listened to these two individuals Um, first both of these uh, individuals equated religion with lifestyle and ethics religion was a matter of lifestyle and ethics it really was not about claims of truth or how true any particular claims of truth of religion were. it was about lifestyle and ethics number two both had dismissed Christianity without any kind of understanding regarding what Christianity claimed historically to be true in terms of the resurrection of Christ. Number three, their understanding of the Bible was that it was old, archaic, and could not be trusted, though they had not read it. And number four, their assumption about Christians was that we are generally intellectually inferior people because we're narrow-minded and close to other religions. And finally, they assumed that Christianity, Islam, and Zoroastrianism all essentially said the same thing which they boiled down to be compassionate towards others. And this was really for both of these individuals, kind of their theme, kind of what they constructed their world around was being compassionate to others. Then Tuesday, uh, as I was flying back from Boston, I had a two and a half hour conversation with a woman who described herself as a liberal Christian, though she admitted that she didn't see the necessity or the relevance of Jesus Christ as it related to her personal relationship with God. This woman was a psychologist, based her belief in God upon her subjective feelings and experiences, uh, not at all upon any objective truth of history or God's word. She was convinced uh, that God had abandoned her when she was a young woman, and then uh, tried throughout her adult life to kind (laughs) of, Go down the Christian path and felt that she had been there and done that, and it didn't work for her. She couldn't feel God in a way that relationally satisfied her, so she continued to point to the fact that God had abandoned her. Now, I've told you many times that in our culture right now, we're in a battle of ideas. But what I want you to see is that we're not really in a battle over truth. It used to be truth, now it's ideas. What's the difference? Well, truth, for the most part, Is presumed to be unknowable within the postmodern mindset people are filled though with ideas and these ideas make up the structure the framework around which they kind of construct their life their behaviors and their hope and it was very interesting to me that as I kind of challenged some of these ideas of the people that I was you know inflicting with my presence uh, they they didn't really care whether the ideas were true. It was more, are they functional? Are my ideas functional? Do they get me through the day? Do they help me be a good person who's generally compassionate towards others? If so, then my ideas are justified regardless of how true they are. So truth in the postmodern world, at least as I'm, as I'm understanding it in these plain conversations that I love to have, Truth in the postmodern world is determined by subjective outcomes not historical facts or in my opinion even logic once in a while. So I think God used me to raise some very important questions and kind of advance the ball down the field with all three of these individuals. But clearly this was the first time for all three of them that a Christian had engaged them in a way that they felt was intellectually responsible and reasonable. Truthfully, they assumed that conservative Christians were simply anxious people who held the black and white views that they, helped, that they thought helped negotiate their fear-based existence. That's the way that they kind of thought of me and, and you and, and Christianity in general. So we have our work cut out for us. This war of ideas is raging all around us, and Christians must engage As believers in Jesus Christ we must be equipped to defend the gospel in ways that challenges these highly subjective and very errant ideas around which now the majority of our culture constructs their worldview. Now what does any of this have to do with our journey through the Gospel of Luke? I would tell you that it has everything to do with our journey through the Gospel of Luke. Why? Because God is not an idea and God is not a feeling. God is God. He is the author of this life. We are characters in his book. We are stewards in his universe. What is or is not cannot possibly emanate from our intellect or our intuition or a gut feeling. I mean, how things actually are, what will be on the other side of this life Is completely dependent upon the one who is responsible for our existence and who created you know the number of our days and this God who is responsible for our existence is not silent God has spoken through his word and the word is not limited to a book or a number of books the word became flesh and dwelt among us his name is Jesus and Jesus shows us what God looks like and he tells us clearly what God says How do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? Because he rose again on the third day. That historical claim of the empty tomb is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. And that historical evidence was provided by multiple witnesses who were willing to die, simply to say, we saw him with our eyes, we touched him with our hands, he's not dead, he's alive. And because Jesus rose again, his words have power and authority that is unparalleled in history. His words reveal what is and what is to come. His words define us, his words instruct us. We can't defend the gospel if we don't know what Jesus actually said. So we've been studying here at Colonial what Jesus did and what he said for for clear, you know, close to two years as we slowly march through the gospel of Luke. And if you've been on this journey, I hope That you are discovering new tools for engaging the culture in a reasonable and thoughtful conversation about truth. Not ideas. Jesus said, I am the truth. If that's the case, people won't know the truth if they don't know Jesus and what he said. We must engage. Now, we've seen over the past several weeks, Jesus not only teaches us about who God is and how God is, but he also teaches us how to talk to God how to pray. And here's what Jesus said about talking to God in Luke 11. He said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And that last phrase is where we find ourselves as we wrap up our, our focused uh, study on, on this prayer. First, look closely at the words of this phrase. Jesus teaches us to pray what's called a negative imperative, which in the English language sounds like don't. Don't do this. We use the negative imperative all the time in my house. (laughs) Don't do that, right? And and it's, it's awkward, isn't it? When we pray to God, lead us not into temptation. Don't lead us into temptation. Almost in a way, for some of us, it might sound like we're scolding God, like we're directing him not to do something that if we left him alone to his own devices, he would do. But that's not at all how the Greek construction really works uh, within this phrase. The nuance here is that we're asking God, we're asking God to spare us, to lead us away from the take pity on us and our weak resolve by steering us clear of temptation. Uh, We see a parallel to this in Luke 22. In Luke 22, we'll get there eventually, uh, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and his disciples are with him and he is going to pray to the Father that very difficult prayer of, take this cup away from me. And he says to his disciples, stay here and pray. And, and, and kind of stand guard. You, you take the watch. And he comes back from praying and he finds that they're falling asleep. And twice he says there in Luke 22, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is what he's teaching us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Every day, Father, lead us not into temptation. Our prayer is that we may not enter temptation into that time of trial and testing and that brings me to the second part of our word study here. The Greek word for temptation is parasmon and it's a it's a much richer word than the English word temptation. Parasmon includes this this uh, sense of a a period or process of testing or trial. You're saying well which one is it? Is it a period or process of testing and trial or is it temptation? It's all of that always with this word. Okay, so it's, it's not just lead us away from the temptation to sin. It's lead us away from the temptation to sin that would lead us into trial or testing. Or it's lead us away from the trial and testing that would lead us into temptation. It's, it's always both of those. Uh, Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy speaks of Parasmon in this way. He says, the temptation here is not primarily the temptation to sin. Trial always tempts us to sin, however, and temptation to sin is always a trial, which we might fail by falling into sin. Moreover, the bad things that come upon us are always trials. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, it's important for us to pray the whole meaning of this word. We're praying that God would would protect us from temptations that lead to trials and that he would lead us away from trials that would tempt us. We are praying both all the time. We're unapologetically asking God to take pity on us, to, to spare us from hardships that might cause us to lose our faith or a lack of faith that might lead us to hardships. Willer goes on to comment on this last line of the Lord's Prayer. He says, this last line is a vote of no confidence in our own abilities. I mean, we're essentially saying, lead us not into temptation because left to our own devices, we're probably going to go there. Willard says, As the series of the requests begins in this prayer with the glorification, glorification of God, it ends with the acknowledgement of the feebleness of human beings. And I think that's appropriate. So what is, what is the meaning and application of these words as we think upon our lives? First, we can assume that this parasmon, this periods of testing and trial, This is normally not God's intention for our lives. It's normally not God's intention for us to be going through trials of testing where we might be tempted to lose our faith or go through a time of such small faith being tempted that it leads us into trials and difficult, painful situations. Jesus is saying every day when you pray, Ask the Father to protect you from painful and difficult circumstances that might cause you to lose your faith. Ask him, pray to the Father, so that you won't have to enter into those seasons and situations. Now, I know what you're thinking. I mean, a lot of you are thinking, yeah, but, I mean, don't we need to go through certain degrees of painful situations and trials and testing so that our faith We'll we'll increase and we'll learn the value of perseverance and endurance and we'll kind of mature in our faith Like Paul talks about in Romans and James talks about in the book of James. Absolutely But don't ignore what's also true and God knows this that many people lose their faith Due to times of trials and testing. I mean if you really do talk to a lot of people on the plane You'll hear people say well. I grew up as a Christian, but then this happened You know I lost my mom or I, 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 I went through a, a terrible time, I lost my job, my wife divorced me, whatever, and I, I just don't believe in God anymore. Many, many people that you know do not believe in God because they went through this terrible season, they were tempted to give up on their faith, and they gave into that temptation. And, and it really has kind of destroyed their, their faith in God. Jesus says, ask the Father to steer you away from such times and situations. Ask him. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now here's a powerful truth that Christ reveals in teaching us to pray this way here in Luke 11. And that is that most of the time, the Father desires to spare us of these painful circumstances that test our faith, that tempt us to give up on Him. Why why would I say that? Because Jesus would not teach us to pray this way if He was secretly thinking, yeah, but it's just going to happen and it's good for you. And, you know, you should be going through these all the time. When Jesus says, when you pray as a believer, ask the Father to lead us not into temptation, to steer us out of that place. Clearly, he believes not only that the Father can do that, but the Father desires to do that. On most occasions... On your normal day as a believer, it is not God's will for you to be in these trials and testing and these situations of temptation. He is more than happy, more than willing, and eager to lead you out of them. Now, there are exceptions. We'll talk about that in a minute. I mean, clearly there are times when God chooses to allow us to go uh, through those times. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I'm just going to ask you to think about your life Think about the way that you view the world every day, the way that you view the circumstances that you're in right now. How would that change if every day you began your day by praying and Father, lead us not into temptation? I'll tell you one way your life would change. First, because you prayed it, you would begin to see. Your eyes would be open and you'd begin to see that the Lord has moved regularly to spare you difficult times and of testing and trials and and that would lead to you possibly being tempted to lose your faith. You you would have the eyes to begin to see it. Let me give you an example. Let's say you go into work on Monday and you have a boss you know who's a pretty intense character and you had to make a tough decision Uh, in your workplace it it was a tough decision you probably made the right decision but your boss misinterprets it completely he comes storming into your office and he's just yelling at you accusing you of being a fool making a terrible decision and he threatens to fire you and then he walks out and slams the door now at that moment you're thinking you know I I have prayed I'm praying right now Lord lead me not into temptation and you sense the Holy Spirit whispering into you be merciful Forgive him. Be patient. Don't strike back. I am with you. So you take your boss's shouting and accusations in stride. You know that in time he will see that your decision was not as crazy as he thinks. And you don't speak poorly of him to your coworkers. I mean, you resist that. What happens? A week later, your boss comes into your office, sheepishly apologizes for yelling at you, offers to give you a promotion since you were loyal to do your job and you didn't talk trash about him even after he wrongly accused you and yelled at you. Now, take the same scenario with an unbeliever or even with, you know, a churchgoer who doesn't pray the Father's, you know, prayer, doesn't, doesn't ask to be uh, delivered from temptation. You, why? Well, because you think of yourself as a smart, competent person. And you feel quite capable of handling yourself and solving your own problems. I mean, prayer is all good for your private life, but business is business. And I'm a business person, right? So now your boss walks into your office, accuses you of being a fool for making the decision that you made. And what do you do? You jump right out of your desk and say, no, you're the fool. And you get into it with your boss. And now because you're trying to justify yourself, you become indignant. He gets even more angry and he fires you right on the spot. Now you go home and you have to tell your wife why well, I lost my job. She says, why would you lose your job? And you start going off about your crazy boss and how ridiculous he is and how wrong he is. And all she hears is you yelled at your boss and he fired you. And now you're very frustrated because your boss has misunderstood you and your, your wife misunderstands you and you just walk out of the house and you slam the door, but you didn't see your three-year-old coming from behind you with his arms outstretched to give you your welcome home hug and you break his hand in the door. Now we have to go to the ER and your wife is furious, and your child is screaming, and you have no insurance because you just lost your job, and you start crying out to God saying, why are you doing this to me? Where are you when I need you the most? And you're tempted to despair, and shake your fist at God, and possibly even lose your faith. Do you see where I'm going with this? Your father in heaven normally desires to spare you the situations and circumstances that would lead you to despair and to lose your faith. Jesus says, ask him. And as we get further into the text, we're gonna see the way that God responds to that prayer is to send you his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit whispers exactly what you need at that moment to resist the temptation that will lead to the trial or to endure the trial that would lead to the temptation. But there is another reality that we will discover should we live into this prayer Jesus taught us and that is that we still will face trials and testing but when we do we'll have an unshakable joy that just is absurd to the watching world. They they will look at us and say, how can you still be smiling? How can you still get up in the morning? How can you still talk about God as though he loves you when you're going through this terrible time? And you will know, because of the prayer that Jesus taught you to pray, because you've been praying, Father, lead us not into temptation. Lead us out of the times of trial and testing. And you find yourself in that time of trial and testing, it's not because God wasn't listening. It wasn't because God doesn't love you. It's because God knows this particular trial, this particular season of testing is for my glory. And it's better than if I spared you this season. It's better. You see, if you're interpreting the world around you in this way that God says it's actually this way, It is my normal operation to spare you of these times, but every once in a while, I will let you go through them because it's better than if I spared you. Then you might actually be thankful for that assignment. You're thinking, well, that's just craziest thing I ever heard. James says it this way, James 1, consider it pure joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How in the world can we look upon the trials and testing in our lives as pure joy? Here's how. Pray every day that God would lead you out of those times so that when you were in those times, you will know God is answering your question, your prayer, this way. Normally, I would spare you trials and temptations, but this particular set of circumstances is even better for you and for my glory. I am allowing you to enter into it so that I can deliver you out of it. I've told you this story, but in closing, I'll just use it again because it's relevant just my story okay right I grew up in a a Christian home in a small little farming community in central Wisconsin Uh, my parents being you know kind of the entrepreneurs they were uh, created a real estate company back in the 70s and they both worked it they owned it and then in the 80s we you know early 80s we had this massive recession double-digit interest rates bank comes along takes the company bank comes along takes our home. We got a family of six with four teenagers. We sell everything we can. We load the rest in a truck, and we move south to Charlotte, North Carolina. This was a terrible season of trial and testing for our family. They continued to pray. They continued to be faithful. I continued to hear my parents say, God's got a plan. Because we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, we get involved in the youth ministry at Providence Baptist Church. It really shapes my life. It gives me a vision for ministry, And because I know the senior pastor there, he encourages me to go to Wake Forest University. Because I go to Wake Forest University, I meet my wife, Christy. Because I marry Christy, I get an invitation from Paul Kale, who's a friend of her family's, to interview for a position at First Presbyterian Church Hilton Head. Because I serve as associate pastor at First Presbyterian Church Hilton Head, I'm invited to interview for the position at Colonial Presbyterian Church. Because I take the position at Colonial Presbyterian Church, I'm standing before you preaching this sermon. Because I'm preaching this sermon to you today, and it'll be recorded on our website, a group of believers of underground churches in Southeast Asia, who use the message at Colonial every week as the edification and teaching for their ministry in Southeast Asia, there will be people that you will never meet in countries where it's illegal to be a Christian who are coming to the faith and being discipled. Do you see that God has a plan? Is it possible that God said normally you know, Marie and Warren West, it is my desire and it is my mode of operation to protect you and to steer you away from times of trial and testing that might tempt you to despair and lose your faith. But this trial, these circumstances, are, it's even better. Because I'm gonna move you where you need to be in order for my big plan to work out that you can't see, but I can. Listen, the Father loves you. (laughs) And he knows what he's doing. And most days, if you'll pray and you'll listen to his Holy Spirit, he'll steer you clear of those terrible times of trial and testing. Would you be tempted to despair? But every once in a while, because he loves you, because his plan is so much bigger and better, he'll allow you to walk through those times, but he never abandons you. He allows you to enter into it so he can deliver you out of it. Do you believe that? That's the word of the Lord. And it's not an idea. It's true. There's power in this prayer. Jesus taught us how to pray. He taught us how to pray in a way that pleases God. And it brings about the greatest good in your life, in the life of your family, in our faith community, in our city, for God's kingdom. So we're going to close today. We're just going to pray this out loud. And we're going to continue to pray this every day as we go through our season of 24 7 prayer, as we go to that you know, that election booth on Tuesday. Pray the prayer he taught us. Let's pray together. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, even as we forgive everyone who sins against us. Lead us not into temptation. Amen.